Patrick and I are from completely different backgrounds and see the world through very dissimilar lenses. Patrick comes from a political family in the US. He worked in finance, served in the military, and is an investor and a risk analysis strategist. I grew up in a commune in Germany and studied literature. I'm a writer and a professor of cultural history in the UK. I am also a coach and I have published some books on the art of self-improvement. In other words, Patrick likes dogs, data, guns, and free markets. I like cats, trees, and yards. Patrick's core interest is systems. Mine is psyches. Patrick says tomato, and I say tomato. But what Patrick and I share is a deep curiosity about other people's perspectives and ways of thinking. We both appreciate nuance and complexity and share a sense of being politically homeless. We also share an interest in looking more deeply at current trends and dogmas and a love of stoic thought. Both of us have a desire for conversations that are not about point scoring, poking holes into other people's arguments, or converting them to our ways of thinking, but that are based on respect and a genuine wish to learn. So I hope you enjoy our podcast. Yeah, let's talk about work, which is one of your core expertise <laughs> and the thing you write about the most, right? Yeah. Yeah, work, I think, is just such an important topic because we have never worked as much and thought about work as much as we do now. And I think work has also become completely overdetermined in the sense that we really expect more than ever from work, right? We don't just expect a paycheck and status, um, but we expect meaning, purpose, we expect social connections, we expect fulfillment, we see work as a vehicle for self-realization, you know, for becoming who we truly are, for unfolding our potential. Um, and I think at some level, you know, we almost expect redemption from work, salvation. So it has become massively overdetermined. And there's, of course, a long history there. And uh, I think, you know, the Protestant work ethic idea that um, Max Weber wrote about has, has something to do with it, the idea that um, doing well in our professions was seen by various Puritan traditions as a sign of being amongst the elect, you know, of, of being one of the chosen ones. So success in your profession has become um, associated with really being, um, you know, being being one of the chosen children of God, sure to be uh, redeemed at the end of our lives. And I think that, you know, that older conception of work and work as a you know sign of redemption, a vehicle for redemption, is still really active nowadays. And it has, of course, been given this psychological twist nowadays. Like you have to self-realize, we have to do meaningful work, we have to love what we do, we have to really um, identify deeply with our work. And if we can, you know, if we have jobs where we're able to do that, um, that that's great. But I think the majority of people um, often really suffer at work. You know. Also because work has become so so overdetermined and expectations are so high. You know, I think there is a horizon of expectation issue when it comes to work. And it's difficult to to bring that down. And I think the quiet quitting trend is actually an instance of um, people saying, hey, work is just work, you know, we're going to work normally. We're not going to invest our all, give our all and, um, you know, 
live and breathe our work anymore. We're going to go to work, we're going to do our job, and then we're going to go home and do something else. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, if you look at what quiet quitting really means, it means people working normally, people working according to contract, not investing extra, you know, not doing lots of unremunerated extra hours, not, you know, investing their hearts and souls into their job, but doing what they're contracted to do. And of course, that's sort of really super scary for employers who have come to expect that extra engagement. You know, a lot of in a lot of companies that, you know, extra engagement actually is normal. So stepping back to what is normal working is actually seen as a disengagement. And I think that's what makes the, the phenomenon so interesting, quiet quitting. It's, it's actually just a uh, a return to normal working. And I do think some people may want to work more. Some people may want to be super engaged because they genuinely care for the clients with whom they work. They genuinely care for the institutions, their bosses, their teams, the cause. And that's fine, you know, but I do think engagement is a gift and we can, we can choose to give it, but we should never be expected to, you know, overwork and to um, give more than then we have agreed in our contracts. I, I think, you know, engagement is a gift. How, what do you think about that, Patrick? Well, I, I echo that sentiment. I think a, a lot of it with the quiet quitting has, happens to be, you know, people in sort of our, our generation looking mm -hmm. down on the younger generation for being like, oh, they just don't want to work as hard as we work. I don't, I agree with you. I don't think that's necessarily the case. What they're saying is, is I'm not going to give up my nights and weekends. And seeing and spending time with my friends for the same amount of salaries people who don't, right? Like, unless, and there are people that who can, you can choose that lifestyle and engagement. You want to be an investment banker in the city of London, you're going to give them more hours. But the problem is, is the culture from, I would say, law consulting and investment banking, which was always on, bled into everything. And it bled into tech, which is a lot of the new jobs for people, right? And I think that. From, from me, from an economic efficiency standpoint, it's been shown that teams that actually have breaks from, from digital, so from constant communication, teams that have all their Sundays off with no communication do better than the always on teams, right? We know, I mean, this is not hard to probably track um, both physically, right, from cortisol levels, as well as resting heart rate, as well as HRV, things like that, but also productivity in work. The people who take more breaks actually deliver better client results. And this was done over very large, um, you know, sets over like Boston Consulting Group, which is notorious. All those places were notorious for, you know, hundred hour weeks work, you know, 12 hours a day, every day, including weekends, because that's what we do. But you actually take more time off. These guys actually thought of better ideas for their clients because a lot of what that noise to me is busy work. And some of the quiet quitting trend is realizing that if you actually look at your work output, whether you work 40 or 60 hours, there's probably, there's a point diminishing marginal returns, right? That's economics sort of one-on-one. People realize like you're just then virtue signaling to your boss. Oh yeah, I'm available, I respond to you. You're not creating much work just because you're checking your phone and responding. So I think it's actually like, I think it's a trend not only for more holistic personal personal life aside from work, I think you're a better employee. If you restrict the hours or you don't answer emails past a certain time or you don't engage, I think long-term you're a more thoughtful, deeper thinking, better employee who can produce better work. That's the part, like I'm looking, you can look at it from personal perspective or the ultimate economic perspective is you actually want your employees to take off more work. Take off more because the more they take off, I think they come back better. And the ones who don't, they're not thinking about work. They're not going to be your superstars. That's fine. It's a distribution, right? You're not, not everyone's going to be the same. Like you said, you're not, not everyone has to have the same desire to climb the ladder. It's a contract. It's a job. And I can choose to have hobbies outside of work. 
Yeah, okay. I, I fully agree with you, Patrick, also that, you know, working more or longer doesn't mean working better. You know, there's, I think in our culture, we also have this presentist bias that if you're there, if you're sitting in front of a screen, you're actually working. But often we sit in front of our screens and we're not working and we're doing lots of displacement activities and we may not be thinking, we may not be problem solving, we may be elsewhere in our thoughts. And I think ultimately the aim should be to work less but better. And that may mean, you know, going home earlier or a four day working week, or it may mean taking proper breaks. And I think there's a lot of research out there, as you said, you know, that shows that if you have proper breaks, if you do switch off after work at weekends, if work doesn't constantly bleed into your day, you know, in the form of messages being always on and so on, you, you become also ironically not not just better rested and well-being is higher but you also become more productive um so it's actually doubly bad you know that kind of always on grinding culture because it it also destroys creativity and it just um doesn't yield the levels of productivity that many people want there are much more creative ways of getting that you know i mean i find the research on the four-day working week fascinating there's just been huge studies in the uk and in other countries and and what they show just confirms that you know working less but better is really what we should be aiming for both from a productivity point of view but also from a um, mental well-being point of view I, I had a friend a mentor um growing up who instituted a four-day work week at his insurance firm in 1997. Wow, that's a pioneer then. <laughs> well, here's what he said is he actually, he, he's sort of a, one of these guys who stumbled into success, just great salesman, great story of life, made three fortunes in his life. And he he realized that his his frontline workers, so his admin people, the underwriters, the processors, not the people out there playing golf with clients and trying to land, like, right? The people who were in the office, they didn't have, they felt like they didn't have a lot of time to get stuff done on the weekends. Because they'd wake up Saturday morning after being tired from working all week and they'd have to scramble to get all these things done, whether it's, you know, go and run errands. And so they don't really feel like they have a day or take kids to sports. And the next day they're basically getting ready for work. And he's like, because he was one of those guys who just worked all the time, but also knew how to take time off. And he realized if I give people four tens, but I schedule it so that there's people there on Mondays and Fridays, but it's like half the team. And you sort of halfway through the year, you switch. So you get Mondays off part of the year and Fridays off part of the year. Everybody gets a three day weekend all week. What that did immediately was it made everyone relaxed and happier at the office. People were much more productive. You don't have that set up time and set down time. The commute time is lessened. So you save a lot more than just one day. But also they could get all their errands done on Fridays or Mondays when it wasn't crowded. And then they had a complete two days of just rest. And that is what made the difference. He said these people were so much more energized because he was a capitalist. He was like, they just produce better for me. You can track how much they did. He's like, it was, but they're happier. Their families are happier. This, he goes, this was the easiest win-win. I didn't have to pay them more. I could have probably paid them less. I didn't, but I could have because it's now attractive. And they were like, he cares about my well-being. Which, if you're an employer of knowledge workers, you should probably care as much. Of, it's like people taking care of machinery in the old days. We don't think of it like that. We sort of think people are renewable resources. They'll come here to work hard. But you should probably care just as much as people cared about how good the machines ran the Ford assembly line in the 30s, right? And they hired all they hired engineers and, and, and master people to design and track the maintenance from the scenes. Most of us just ignore that. You know, you ask them how you're doing, you have maybe cursory check-in, but it's not really like looking people as optimizers, right? It's they'll show up and work hard, and if they don't, they're not an employee. There may be something more that we can do around that, but around the four tens, my my meat processing business, we do four tens. When I started working with them, you know, four years ago, we were doing five eights. 
our productivity is much better, much better. Mm -hmm. Four tens is it's everyone's happier with it. They all have more time. They get they can go hunting and fishing on the weekends. They can have other hobbies outside of work. But when they're there, they get more done. And mm -hmm. most of the manufacturing firms I've talked to that do that, they they see big results in the productivity. And you know, five or six percent change in a manufacturing firm is tremendous because they're not high margin business. That all drops to the bottom line. And I think that's and these are people who, you know, probably wouldn't have thought of this. They just thought they've heard other people talk about it. They've seen other firms do it. And now it's cascading through the manufacturing service sector of maybe we need four times. Now, some businesses like my friend, he he needed coverage Mondays and Fridays because there are client calls for an insurance claim. He just cut it in half. Yeah. So a manufacturing firm doesn't do that. They, they just shut down on Friday. But you still may have like a salesperson and an admin person there. And those people can work not Mondays then. Right? And you sort of flip flop them. That is like that. I think that gives people more autonomy, more personal freedom, and more ability to explore things outside of work, which probably bring good things back to work. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and that's just looking at it from a productivity perspective. You know, but I think the well-being perspectives also so important, and they're interconnected, of course, right? But um, you can emphasize one or the other. And I mean, I personally find. You know, some, some metaphors that see people, that cast people quite literally as resource, very problematic. You know, like even the term HR, human resources. I mean, to look at human resources, <laughs> actually, what we should be questioning, right? Um, or like dead wood or other nasty, nasty terms for, for employees. Do we um, say human, human capital? How do we say it? Uh, <laughs> What's a good? A good one. Yeah. I don't know. Flow, fl flowering branches. <laughs> <laughs> Budding seats, you know. Um, so I do think that we should be thinking so much more creatively about work, you know, how to work and how how many hours, in what state of mind, even, you know, should we be sitting or standing, home office or, you know, being present in, in bigger offices. I mean, there's so many different ways in which we could be more creative about work. And I think most people are so stuck in in their ways. And of course, you know, COVID has forced a change with um, people working from home and discovering other ways of, of working. But I also do think that people have a, you know, like we all have our biorhythm. We have hours in the day when we are hyper alert, super switched on and productive. And then we have our slump moment. And then we have another hour where we, where we can be incredibly creative. And I think when, you know, when we have the privilege to be able to follow those patterns, um, that, that's amazing. That makes such a difference, you know, to know when, when you're switched on, you, you, you work on your most important thing, and then you can do other tasks when you, when you're, when you're something down, or you can actually take a break and come back. And, and, and I think if, if we would allow people more flexibility to actually also follow their more unique patterns, um, that will make such a big difference. And, you know, just to cherish the break and cherish rest. I mean, so many people think of, you know, rest just as a necessary break that, that they need to take so that they can remain productive. And that's such an instrumental, instrumentalizing way of, of looking at the issue. But, but, you know, rest is such a, such an important topic and high performance athletes they know how to rest you know they know that you can't build up muscle without resting in between and then everyone who um you know if you look at the animal world and at, at 
at, at creatures and plants that live in, in harmony with the seasons. There are always patterns of rest, patterns of activity. And I think one of our problems is that, you know, with technology, markets that never sleep, 24-7 culture, like we, we, we could, we can just go, keep going. We can't just not rest. And, and it's tempting not to, and we get sucked in. And, and work can be addictive. And, you know, when other people work, really long hours we feel like we we would have to do that too you know there's this kind of peer pressure effect of bad working cultures you know if everyone yeah. works super long hours you're the only one who enforces boundaries or says i'm gonna go home it's five that can be hard you know it's like i mean working cultures um can really make or break our our you know potential for for being able to flourish at work if you have lots of people modeling bad working cultures and bad working behaviors, including um, CEOs, that, that can really impact on how everybody else then works because they copy these patterns. These patterns become the norm. And it needs a lot of, it requires a lot of courage to say, no, you know, I'm going to go home now. <laughs> I'm not going to be last in. I think there are some tech trends. I don't know if you've seen this when you send emails past a certain time. There's now a default switch where it says, do you want to send during normal working hours? Yeah. You have to override it. Yeah. And all that is, is that, you know, it's a nudge like Richard Thaler, right? It's, you're not saying you can't send it now. You're saying, do you really want to send an email at midnight to someone mm -hmm. who works eight to five? How about they get it at 830 tomorrow morning? Because do you want them to actually open this and respond? Now, because part of it, like when you send that email, you want to get it off your mind. But do you really want them to receive it before you're going to bed? Probably not, right? You would like them to receive it when they, when they're set to work and respond. Because it's not an emergency. If it was an emergency, you call them. By virtue of you sending an email, it's not an emergency, correct? That's that's how I always look at emails, which is why I don't like getting late night emails or early morning emails from people, because I know that they're not being, I know what the default is. And both Microsoft and Google now have it built in, which is, hey, just send it. And it makes it very easy to send it. You know, it's like, you, you still get it off your mind. You know they're going to receive it, but you're being more conscientious of them and their schedule and their rhythms. And so I, I agree and I, I, saw, I don't know if you noticed this a few years ago, maybe maybe six, seven years ago, there were some people who would have autoresponders, like I don't answer email on the weekends. Yeah. And as long as you don't answer emails on the weekends and you don't like you don't make exceptions, you just don't do it. I actually think those people were way, I, I don't think people are going to respond to email. I don't think people are going to do emails on the weekends in the future. I think it's going to be looked down. It's incredibly, if you're a boss that does that, no one's going to work for you. Because it doesn't, unless, if it's an emergency, why don't you call me? Because a guy can send 10 emails in a flurry. He can't call 10 people in a flurry. And you and I also know when you call someone, you probably, you talk differently. Hey, are you having a nice weekend with your kids? I really hate to bother you, right? This is something that just came up. And it's like, if it is an emergency like that, hey, we need, this is our biggest client of our business. We need to get them something by Monday. I'm, I, this was totally last minute. Whereas in the email, it's like, you better get on this because Monday we need to get this to the client. Whereas when you call someone, they get context and they go, oh, my boss called, but this is not going to happen every weekend. And this is just really important. Whereas if you get in the habit of firing off those short emails, you don't put context, there's no tone. You can't be apologetic, it's hard to be apologetic. Yeah. People feel attacked in an email, and if you said it to them on the phone, they'd be like, okay, cool, you're under stress too. You're worried about losing this client. I'm gonna leave my kids thing to get this done because that's a sacrifice I chose, but it's not a demand from an email account. And I think we're gonna change email culture. I hope we do, right? I think it's not a great form of communication. I, I think that it's the younger people understand this. They're less into it. And I think bosses that don't adapt are going to have a hard problem keeping talent because whatever we think about the younger generations, they are going to be our worker base. 
they're going to be our partners, right? You're going to have to learn how to adapt around that and still get what you need out of your business. But you can't just do what worked what with Blackberries 22 years ago, right? Firing off emails, sitting in the cafe, expecting everyone to do how you think how you think. Mm, yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, also that the you know that with those automatic prompts to consider whether you really want to send the email at that time. I've seen that as well. And we have it um, in our university email. We have, um, you know, consider sending this during working hours and, and yep. we can schedule emails now, which is great. Yep. And it may seem trivial, but I do think you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Patrick. I think it's a culture shift. You know, this is actually an indication that people are becoming very conscious of the fact how detrimental to our health, you know, bad email culture can actually be and, and how toxic working cultures that are always on and expect everyone to always respond immediately can can be. It's um, I think it's a, it's a sea change, actually. And I, it's, it's, a, it's a good point that you mentioned that, you know, those little technological twi twists, they always indicate deeper shifts, you know, and I think this attention more generally speaking to burnout culture, and how how detrimental that can be to our mental and physical health. I mean, everyone's talking about burnout these days, and I think it's a good thing. You know, we needed that. That's you know, the, the pendulum is swinging in the other way now. Um, you know, the culture as you described at you know investment banking for firms and law firms, um, that that's no longer going to be the norm. You know, that is actually going to become as taboo as smoking and drinking at some point. Um, and I think that's a good thing, you know, so quiet quitting. Also, I see that as part of that movement, you know, like yeah. a reinvestment in work, a return to more normal ways of working again, because we have recognized that this is ruining people's mental and physical health and it's toxic and it's dangerous, you know, and it's also bad for productivity. <laughs> so everyone has an interest in this. Everyone has an interest in not making this happening. And, you know, I think along with what you're saying is those guys are usually not leading indicators. They're in the market, right? They're the biggest companies. So the fact that this is happening, meaning a lot of people are demanding, let's schedule this stuff, right? Because I remember I could schedule two or three years ago, but you had to, you had to implement a different software overlay. You couldn't use the default in, in sort of Google, Gmail or an Outlook. Now they're prompting you by default, which shows the default is the right, right? That's, that's the trend. Now you're in the normal distribution. So the people who are imagining you to work 24 seven are now going to be the extreme and they, they, that can still exist. You can choose to do that, but it shouldn't be the default to all of us. And I do agree that over time, it's going to change completely in terms of your availability. The one thing about COVID that I think also made people aware was that I have friends now that commute back to offices because they like the commute mm. because it gives them downtime. So they read the paper, they think about sports, they read an article because it gave them a break, a transition period. Because you ask them, why you don't need to go to the office in downtown Chicago from the suburbs. Well, no, I like to walk to the train, have a coffee on the train, read the paper, get to the office. Because when I come home, I'm not stressed out from work. I don't feel pressure. And then I can hang with my wife and kids. Total separation. Whereas when people were in home offices, like you and I sort of are right now, there was no separation. And they, they, they stopped a meeting, which may be a heated discussion. And then they walked in the other room. And that was not the way it was supposed to be in life. There are people, there are a lot of creatives and a lot of people that work from home. They don't have the same high pressure service businesses where they're dealing with clients or they're talking with the team. And that's a different mentality, right? You need, that's, you need to sort of switch off. If you're someone who's developing, you can work wherever you want, right? You can, there are plenty of people that are doing remote for a very long time. They're just not people who are usually doing it in a high, they get to choose their pressure situations. They don't have it forced on them. 
And I think now you're seeing it won't be revert to normal working culture, but some people are saying, I like having a division between my work. And even though the, the uh, commuting is inefficient, it actually did something for my mental state. Yeah. Right. And that's, which is, I think no one thought that people, oh, I hate commuting. Now some people are saying, no, I actually like commuting, especially if it's on the train, because you can do more than if you're driving, right? You can sort of listen to a book or you can read a book or you can read the paper or you can talk to the person next to you about a soccer game or a baseball game, right? It just gives you just like chit chat. And I think that is actually going to come back a little bit yeah, because there's an element to it that's nice. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just this idea of divisions, division of spheres, right? You have your working sphere, you have your life sphere, you have um, also a need to actually create a geographical distance between yourself and your work and, and to somehow demarcate those boundaries um, in other ways, spatially as well. And I think the, you know, what you described this kind of coming down and the kind of digesting and switching modes and getting from one place into another that I can imagine that being incredibly um, curative and, and, and restorative at some level. I mean, other people don't need that or don't, don't like that. Um, I think, again, Choice. you know, that shows us, shows us how we're very, very different, you know, and we work well in different ways. You know, some people need lots of people around and they thrive on chit chat and small talk and gossip and all of that. And that's really, really essential for them. And it's, you know, work is also a communal place, you know, it's, I mean, I think most of our contacts these days happen at work. And um, so I think COVID has also been a really lonely time for many people because that broke away. Um, and you have to be more proactive, you know, to make make those things happen when they're not happening automatically in, in your workspace. Um, but other people just love working on their own and and having their own space and not having to chit chat. <laughs> include myself here. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know how how did you experience you know the working from home? I, I had been working semi remotely, or I, I'd have autonomy over my schedule for a long time, mm -hmm. and probably at least the last seven years. So. It, it wasn't as big of a change. For me, it, it was great in the sense that it reduced the amount of what I would call frivolous business travel. So yeah. travel that was maybe not very high value, but you thought you should do it because people think you need to sit across the table to meet for the first time. Now you can do those er, those first initial meetings in Zoom. You still have to travel for important things. Travel is a, a part of my schedule to meet with, whether it's an investor or looking at a company or uh, investigating an idea or doing research or due diligence. But you can still do now the front 50% remote. So you basically cut your travel in half. So if you're traveling 30% of the time, you're now 15%, much more manageable, better life. And I think that's across the board, my friends I've talked to in a lot of different jobs, it just took out the travel that probably wasn't high value, but you felt like you had to sort of like answering that email at eight o'clock on Saturday night, you sort of did it, but you knew it didn't really make sense because there was no emergency. I think that stuff sort of that's changed, right? And I, so I, I think for me, I'm like you, I don't really need a lot of the chit chat in the office. I'll still go into an office to have a little bit of that. I just noticed that everyone else thrives on it. They, they think it's like, and that's, I think it's great. Like you, people are different, right? Mm. We're all different types of athletes, different types of personalities, different and how we determine, you know, I always had a, a funny, I never understood when people were talking about just work life balance, because to me it was much, I just like to say, why don't we just go back to balance? Because mm -hmm. work is just a component of your life. It's not separate than your life. It's just part of it. It's like your, your life's a pie. Part of it's work. There isn't work pie and a life pie. They're just part of the same. You should be a balanced person. But when 
businesses talk about work-life balance. They want the work to be 50-50. Like it's, they're looking at it like 50-50, right? And I'm looking at it as a smaller component, whatever you decide. It could be 50-50. You can make the choice. But I just think we should start, you know, part of it is the, the stoic idea of a temperance, right? A balanced approach. And you could choose to be unbalanced at certain times in your seasons in your life. But it's your balance. It's not some work-life balance that someone else imposes on you. Gives you more agency and sort of individual choice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, work-life balance is a fascinating concept as well. You know, I once saw a graphic that was really interesting, like a little infographic, and it had, you know, most of us, when we think work-life balance, we think of, you know, a block of work and life, you know, as kind of, as you say, as though they were separate things with a clear dividing line between them. But that infographic showed lots of different ways in which we can think about balance, you know, like work and life interacting in, in totally different geometric and non-geometric patterns, you know, like lots of little blocks of work, lots of little blocks of life, and then, you know, a big one and a small one and a big one and a small one, or even, you know, like really um, completely abstract way of ways of thinking about work life, you know, with, with little squiggly lines that constantly, um, you know, mm -hmm. interact in other ways. So I think even the image we have of, yeah. of work life balance is tends to be quite monolithic. Um, but, you know, it, it, it could be whatever, whatever works for us, you know, it could work mm -hmm. and, life and interact and intersect and, um, you know, take precedence in, in lots of different ways. And I fully agree with you, Patrick. I think balance, balance is the aim. But, you know, we can, there can be external circumstances where we, it's hard to enforce balance. You know, quite a lot of my clients have jobs where they just have an incredibly high workload and they have super tight deadlines and they have to work until midnight. And it's not their fault. You know, it's not like they're bad at drawing boundaries. It's like it actually comes from the outside. There's very little they can do. You know, they can be resilient. They can practice saying no. But, you know, there is that external pressure and, and, and there's not a lot of agency they have to respond to that. Um, in other cases, you know, we can be our own bosses. We can, you know, we can be bad at putting boundaries in place, even if we're our, you know, even if we're freelancers or um, creatives, we can also sometimes struggle with with that. And um, it's not always external, but sometimes I think when it really is external um, and there's little you can do, it's it's hard to it's hard to know what to what to say in these cases. But I guess there's also a temporality question. You know, they may have that life for a while and then they may kind of choose other professions. But you know, there are certain mm -hmm. professions where people have to be on until midnight and they have no choice. Um, so, but the choice they have is to choose the profession or yes. for a period of time. And mm -hmm. I also think like, in different seasons of your life, you have the ability, you have the stamina, you can make those sacrifices, right? For uh, To build up whether it's career capital or financial capital to then do something later, which is what a lot of people have done. Um, I joke with people when they ask what it's like to have you as your own boss. And I said, well, it's great. You can determine your working hours and you can be flexible. The bad thing is when your boss is an asshole, you have no one to complain to. And the truth is, is people, a lot of people work for themselves. They find that their boss is pretty demanding, right? Because there's, you, you can place, you can place just as many internal demands on yourself as external demands. And so I, I do think that people laugh when they hear that, but I said, it doesn't, it's actually not as funny as you, it sounds, but it's true, right? Because if you're someone who's uh, driven, to succeed in any realm, you can actually be worth. And that's one of the reasons I think a lot of, you know, you and I talk about a lot about athletes. Athletes don't train themselves because mm. they would train themselves to get hurt. They would push themselves too hard. They wouldn't actually get better because they would think the more pain, the better I'm doing. Because that's their nature, why they're a good athlete. And I think 
there's also that's maybe an element of the rise of you know your profession in business coaching is there are people who need someone to sort of temper what they're doing because they would they would run themselves into the ground otherwise and that's, that's why they, yeah. they come that's to you and saying like i'm really high performing in this why am i exhausted maybe the problem is you're doing it yourself a lot of times you know if you're an er doctor or a corporate lawyer we, that they have external circumstances right if you're a special forces soldier you have external circumstances but probably what you 90 percent of people being burnt out it's more internal or the way they're engaging with work they can they can actually control a lot of it because they're just they're just high high driven people right and that is something that you can actually rectify you can give the other people strategies coping strategies recovery strategies but they're in a profession which is demanding and it's every day that's one thing but that's i don't think that's the high percentage of burnout I think the high percentage of burnout are lots of knowledge workers and lots of random across the subset. There's lots of people who feel burned out because they're actually thinking, I need to respond. I need to be on a resume. I need to do every one of these things. Oh, I have too many tasks. Oh, I'm going to, they're actually putting more external demands themselves because they want to succeed. I think there is, I, I think a lot of people who are burned out tend to be perfectionists and, and, you know, just deeply caring and they really, really want to do a great job and, and it matters to them how they perform. Absolutely. I do also think there are bad structures. You know, there are no doubt working environments with really bad toxic structures. And that also accounts for a huge percentage of, of burnout, you know, where you just have bad communication, unreasonable workloads, um, toxic bosses, toxic colleagues, um, and where you have unfairness. I think unfairness and injustice, perception of injustice at work can be a huge burnout driver and also um, not feeling appreciated. But I do think what you said about the kind of being your own bad boss and, and um, having this tendency to kind of work ourselves into the ground, it's actually quite scary to think about that, right? That we need other people to tell us, hey, take a break, you know, look at your pattern, it's not healthy. That's not sustainable. I mean, I wonder, I wonder how that happened, you know, that we kind of forgot about our off switch. I mean, obviously, technology has a lot to do with that, you know, the fact that we no longer have communal resting patterns, you know, like in the in the past, obviously, you know, we had like the Holy Sabbath, and we had other holy days where everyone paused, everyone rested, and rest was something communal, right? You couldn't just work on those days. Um, so I think we, we miss miss out on the on these kind of, you know, cultural resting patterns. But we also, I think, have a tendency to drive ourselves really hard, and we have unlearned the art of rest. I really believe that. I think we need to relearn how to rest well again. And I think when you come and work can be addictive. I mean, work can be a real drug. And then the more you work, the less you know what gives you pleasure and joy. And then you don't even know what to do in your free time, you know, because you, you've lost touch with that. I completely concur with that. I think I look at people and maybe you experienced this growing up. People that I knew were very high performers in work or had high stress jobs they still weren't always on as much because of electronic availability. They got to work at a more natural pace. So even the people I knew in my neighborhood who were in knowledge work type lawyers or accountants, they didn't work the same hours they do today. The reason is, is because when they weren't productive, they stopped working. No one made them work at 11 o'clock at night for reading a brief. If they were finished, they were finished because there was no email ability. I think a lot of it has to do with Slack, email, instant messaging culture. You're supposed to, you know, you're at your kid's game and you're at the game but you're answering emails from work. You're not the game and you're not doing work. See, it's all, and that's where I think the bleed over is sort of the bad, like you said, the demarcation line of um, having a Sabbath or having a day off of all digital devices. They, they had days off of work. 
because when they were away from the phone, it couldn't ring because they didn't have it in their pocket. And so there was, even though they, they might've been thinking about work, there was nothing to notify them. They could also think about playing saxophone because there was no notification built in that was telling them, oh, you need to get this client brief off Sunday morning. No, they didn't. You couldn't, you, now if there was an emergency, you could call them. I mean, I, I know, I remember going with my dad to the office on the weekends, but it was all, it was for like two or three hours in the morning for him to catch up on admin tasks and maybe meet with a couple lawyers. And then we would go to the gym together and then spend all day. So it wasn't like people didn't work on the weekends, but once he left at 11, he didn't think or talk about work for the rest of the time until Monday morning. And they were, they, they were healthier because of that. Yeah, right? I fully believe that. You know, I, I fully believe that in tech and reachability is a major issue here. And it's also, it requires a lot of discipline not to look at your email and not to look mm -hmm. at your phone, right? The default is that you constantly check, constantly look, but to train yourself not to do that because they're so highly addictive is actually also requires energy. It's another expenditure of energy and it's another, it's a bad yeah. habit that we've all required. And it's like smoking, we need to <laughs> let go of that again. And I think another really interesting thing is sort of acceleration, more generally speaking, you know, the kind of speed at which we can now communicate. Um, you know, if you just think 100 years ago or, or 200 years ago, it took days, weeks, months for a letter to get to you sometimes. And, and now we just have to react to um, information, to messages, to requests instantaneously, instantaneously, right? They reach us within milliseconds. And then also the expectation is that we respond within milliseconds. Um, so I think acceleration and that kind of faster pace of life that is happening because of our new communication technologies is also a major stressor. Right. It's also something that we have to probably as a species, we have to learn how to respond more calmly to acceleration, like how to live well in an environment that is so accelerated. It's like, and when to, when to keep to our own slower pace and when to, you know, obviously react fast when it's, when it's necessary, but it's not always necessary. You know, that urgency at work is, is kind of artificial. It's just because information reaches us so quickly, but the tasks as such, in, in, I don't know, 90% of the cases are probably non-urgent tasks. Mm -hmm. I, and I think part of that is not just training yourself to not look at the phone or your messaging, it's to train others that given these hours, I'm not responding. I'll respond to you tomorrow morning, thoughtfully. I'm just not going to respond to you. And that's, I know it's hard for people because it seems callous in the beginning or some people are like, oh, this person, you can be, you're a very serious, productive worker. I only, I'm only going to answer emails between noon and one o'clock every day. So if you send me something at five, I'll get to you next day at noon. That's mm -hmm. why I do it while I'm having lunch and I just sort of answer everything and, you know, but, or I batch my emails. I may write them earlier, but they all go out then. You have to train the people you work with and yourself to not fire off responses. Because if you fire off responses all the time, then you don't fire off a response. Then people are nervous when you don't fire up response. Oh, they don't care about me. If you tell people, I don't respond quickly. I take my time and I do my batch my work. They may not like it, but they'll, they'll adjust to it. Right. Yeah. I just think, you know, like you said, though, there's a lot of default work culture. If you're in a big business, they expect you to answer that Slack message on Saturday morning at 730. Right. And unless you can actually say, well, actually, I do answer all my Slack messages, just not within the first 10 minutes, maybe within three hours. You can, you can make that statement. And as long as you're a really productive worker, they'll work with you. The key is like, I think your work capital gives you that agency. It's just hard because in a lot of firms, like you said, bad bosses, they're getting pressured by someone else for a response. They're pressuring you, right? And it cascades down. 
Yeah, it's, I, I think, absolutely right, that point, Patrick. It's also about modeling, right? And really the impact of how we behave and what our response rates are, that again, that creates culture, right? That contributes to how other people re will respond. And it can also be disconcerting when we break with our pattern because we have our behavioral pattern, like responding immediately or resp responding within a few hours. And people expect that from us. And when we stop doing that, then that will be you know, alarming for others. Um, but I do think what is interesting is that we could all really shape culture by how we respond. And, and that in turn, I think, might make other people more aware of their speed, speed of response.